Last time I was here, we were praying for Christians in Afghanistan. Uh, that was right around the time all that was happening was when I was here. And now we're praying for Christians in Ukraine. And it just goes to show, no matter what time we are in history, we're always going to have troubles in the world. And they're always going to be different troubles. You can't control what comes next or what happens next. And it's just a constant reminder of why gathering as the church is necessary to focus on what doesn't change, to focus on what is stable and what keeps us secure, and that is God and his word. So it's always a joy to gather with fellow believers and open his word and remind ourselves that even though the world will go crazy until the end, we have the consistent, unchanging word of God to stand on, and we find comfort in that. So let's pray just one more time before we get into the scripture. Father, we thank you for speaking to us, for giving us a written word that could be like a light and a dark path to teach us how to walk, for speaking clearly and, and coming down in a way that we can understand you, for accommodating yourself to us and, and giving us something that's palatable so that we could know you. And most of all, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for providing a perfect and pure sacrifice and providing the only mediator that could stand between God and man as God and man to bring us to yourself. And we ask today as we look into your word that you would give us insight, that you would by your spirit open our eyes to understand more fully who Christ is and to love him more. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. One older theologian said, If some obscurity is perceived in the scriptures, it is not due so much to the scripture as to the feebleness of our intellect. It is not due to the obscurity of its explanation, but to the majesty of its subjects. He's saying there are things that are difficult to comprehend in scripture, difficult to understand, but it's not because the word of God is unclear. It's because our minds are weak. We have limited, finite human minds, and because of the majesty of the subjects that we find in Scripture. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, so that we may observe all the words of the law. And I bring up that quote and that passage from Deuteronomy just to say there are things difficult to comprehend in Scripture, but that doesn't mean we get to retreat under the word mystery. It's a mystery. I don't have to think about it anymore, especially if Scripture speaks on it explicitly. And so I wanted to open with that because today we're jumping into the deep end of the pool. And you can open your Bibles to John chapter 5. Our text is going to be mostly verse 19 through 23, but we're going to look at the context up to it. And in this passage, we have both the incarnation, that is God the Son with a human and divine nature, and the Trinity, which is three persons with one essence, one substance. And those are two things for which there is no analogy. There's nothing like the Trinity. There's nothing like the incarnation. 
So this is one of those points, as we read from Deuteronomy 29, 29, where God has spoken to us, so even though it's difficult to comprehend at times, we have an obligation to study his word and call on his spirit to help us understand and apply it. So my goal today is that we understand what this passage means, why it matters, and because of that, that we would worship God more. So looking at the context of John 5, uh, 5.19 is the passage we're going to be looking at, but leading up to that, there's this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, as usual. I don't think that was me, so I'm good. <laughs> so there's this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus heals a man, you may remember the one laying outside the pool who was a lame man. Jesus heals him, and then in verse 8, he commands the man to pick up his pallet and walk. Now, after being healed, this man got rebuked by the Pharisees for carrying his pallet on the Sabbath. Look at verse 8. Or, yeah, we'll read verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to the man, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. 9, immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. That's significant. That's cluing us off to the context. So that's what irritated the Pharisees. Not that Jesus healed somebody. Not that a man was walking and carrying his bed on the in, in general, but that it was on the Sabbath. That's where the issue came in. So eventually, the healing and the command to carry the pallet was traced back to Jesus, causing him to be accused of breaking the Sabbath, if you go down to verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So this is a familiar type of story we see in the Gospels, where Jesus does something on the Sabbath and it irritates the Jewish establishment of the day. In the past, sometimes Jesus will answer by saying their laws are illegitimate. Saying, I can do this on the Sabbath because you've added a fake law that's not from the law of God. Other times, he defends his action on the Sabbath by defending the type of work it is. He says, this type of work is not forbidden in the word of God to do on the Sabbath. But in this instance, he gives neither of those explanations. He doesn't point to the type of work. He doesn't point to their illegitimate laws. Instead, he points to who it was that did the work. In verse 17, he answered them and said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, he says three things there that irritate the Pharisees and actually drive them to try to kill him. First, he calls God my father. My father. And to say that is to imply that he is of the same nature as God. If you have a human father, you have a human nature. If you have a, a dog for a father, you have a, you're a dog. If God is your father... You would be the same nature as God. And the Jews understood that, that he was making himself equal with God. Look at verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but by calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So they knew exactly what he was saying. There was no confusion. We think about it a little bit differently today, so we can miss details like that. But thankfully, God has included in his word the explanation for us. They knew that when he said, God is my father, he was claiming to be of the same nature, and to be equal to God. So that's the first thing that set them off. Secondly, and this, this didn't irritate him so much, but it's how it's connected to the rest of the verse. He said, my father is working until now. And the idea here is of a continuous, unbroken work. It's not 
he did this, and then he did this, and then he did that. This is the working until now continuously. And we see that because uh, the Greek is pretty clear on that, but the English translations wrestle with it. So I'm reading from the NASB. It says, my father is working. The NIV says he is always at work. The Christian Standard Bible says he is still working. The New King James says he has been working. So they're all wrestling to translate this phrase that gives the idea of the father with this continuous, unbroken working since creation. So what is the work then? He says, my father has been working until now. They understood what he meant. He was talking about the sustaining of the universe since creation. Because they knew God has to work on the Sabbath. If God quit working on the Sabbath, creation would cease to operate. It wouldn't exist anymore if God wasn't upholding and sustaining all things. So they would have agreed with him that God must work on the Sabbath. And we see this in Nehemiah 9, 6, which records, You are the Lord alone. You made the heaven, the heavens and all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. So they, as students of the Old Testament, they would have known that God preserves and upholds the universe and that he must do that even on the Sabbath. So no issue with that idea in itself. But look back at verse 17. He says, my father is working until now and I myself am working. By adding that on, Jesus is saying that he has been upholding the universe the same way the Father has since creation, that he has been working until now, just as God created the earth in six days and upholds it ever since. Now the Son is saying, I do that work too. And we see this in the New Testament most clearly, John 1, 3, earlier in the book. He says, all things came into being through him, that is the word, who is Christ, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So creation is a work of the Son. And as we read uh, in the scripture reading, Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him all things were created, then verse 17, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1, 3 also says, He, that is the Son, upholds all things by the word of his power. So Jesus is taking this thing that the Jews would have known from studying the Old Testament, that God preserves and sustains and upholds the universe, and he's saying, I do that work as well. That second statement, that he does the same work of the Father, is the natural implication of the first statement, that he's the same nature as the Father. If he is God, as the Father is God, he does the same works as God. And that's what the rest of the passage explains. So the second statement on their unity of work is the logical implication of his first statement on their unity of nature. And this is one of those things that we can lose to familiarity. Something we're so familiar with, so common to us. Many of you have read the Gospels or heard the Gospels since you were a child that we lose the impact of what's happening here. Just as an example of how this happens everywhere, you know, I will never have the experience of watching Star Wars Episode Five and not knowing that Vader is Luke's father. That will never blow my mind, because I knew that before I watched the movie. You're supposed to get to that point, and he says, no, I am your father, and it's like this groundbreaking moment. And even the actor, he said when he first read that line, he thought Darth Vader was lying. 
because it's so shocking. But it's never been shocking to me because I've always known that. I knew it before I watched the movie. And in the same way, we're so familiar with who Jesus is and what Jesus does, we lose what's shocking about this. This is a human being standing on human feet, speaking with a human mouth, telling the Pharisees, I have upheld the universe since it was created. That is a shocking claim to be made. So I say all that to set up the context, to see how is Jesus going to explain this to these people that don't believe him. They understood his point, as I said in verse 18, and they tried to kill him because they knew exactly what he was saying. And just as a note, you know, those who say Jesus never claimed to be God, claimed to be equal to God, this would have been a great time for him to clarify. They're getting ready to kill him because they know he said he's equal to God. And he could have said, whoa, no, no, you misunderstood me. That's not what I meant. But instead, for the rest of the chapter, he just doubles down on it and hammers it home and clarifies on it. We're only going to get to look at a few of those verses, but we'll start in verse 19. So let's read verse 19 together. John writes, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is what he sees the Father doing. For... Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And so we can split this verse into two halves. The first half and the second half together are showing us two different ways of saying the same thing. And that is that the Son works every work that the Father does as well. So in the first half, we see what we could call a negative unity. That is a unity in not working. So let's read the first half of 19 again. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. So the first half of this verse, he's saying, I never work unless the Father is working. If the Father doesn't do something, I don't do it either. So it's, he's emphasizing the negativeness of it. And that's, in the Greek, it's actually a double negative. It's the Son is not able to do nothing of himself unless he sees what the Father is doing. And what he's saying here is that he never works separately from the Father. He never works independently of the Father. So we see he never works unless the Father is working. And in context, you can see this whole argument going back to verse 8, where he healed the lame man. And he's building up to say, if you have a problem with my works, what I did on the Sabbath, you have a problem with the Father, because I only do what he does. So you can see he's kind of building to make that point down in verse 23. So first of all, he says, I never act unless the Father is acting. And then we see a positive unity in the second half of the verse. So he says, whatever the Father does, these things the Son does also. So now positively, he says, whatever the Father does, everything the Father does, the Son does also. That's a statement of quantity. Every single thing that the Father does as God, the Son does as God. And then he says, in like manner. That's a statement of quality. So he says, I do everything the Father does, and I do it in the same way that the Father does it. And again, going back to the Sabbath and the healing on the Sabbath, he's building up to this idea to say, if you have a problem with my works, you actually have a problem with who? The Father. Because we do the same works. Because they are the same nature. 
So Jesus is simply expanding what he's already said back in verse 17 when he said, My father is at work and I am also working. Again, if he wanted to to clarify that he wasn't God, he just said all the wrong things. He just went the exact opposite direction from clarifying their misunderstanding. But what we see Jesus teaching here is a doctrine that's been called the doctrine of inseparable operations. And that's something we say in reference to the Trinity, three persons, one God. When God acts in creation, it's one act that all three members of the Trinity do. All three persons of the Trinity do because they are the same one God. As Matthew Barrett says, the three persons are undivided in their works in creation, their external works, because they are undivided in their internal nature. Because there's one God, his works must be unified. And that seems complicated, and that's terminology you probably won't remember, but that's okay because it's so clear in Scripture that we all probably have the building blocks to understand it. Biblically, we can see it clearly in something like the resurrection. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The Father, the Son, or the Spirit? Well, Galatians 1.1, Paul opens up the letter. He says, Paul, an apostle, not sent through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So Paul says, the Father raised the Son from the dead. But in John 10, just a few chapters beyond our text, Jesus says, no one has taken, that is his life, away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So the Son says, it's by his own authority. And in 1 Peter 3.18, Peter writes that Jesus was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. So, on the test, who raised Jesus from the dead? A, Father, B, Son, C, Spirit. Which one do you check? D, all of the above. Exactly right. The answer is yes. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Because it's one God acting as one God. All three persons equally the same God. They are not each other, but they are the same God. We see this in creation as well, Genesis 1. We see it more generally attributed to the Father, John 1 to the Son, and then in Psalm 33, the Spirit. So in each case, the work of resurrection and creation, they're attributed to each person separately throughout Scripture, yet there is only one work that's done. And that's what Jesus is hinting at here. He's saying, I work the exact same works that the Father does. There's no gap between the Father's working and the Son's working. But their unity doesn't stop there. He begins to build on this. If you look at verse 20, I'm reading from the NASB. It begins with the word for. Then in verse 21, again, the word for. And verse 22 begins with the word for. And then verse 23, so that. So he gives some reasons here. He says for three times and then so that is kind of the first punch of his bigger argument in this chapter. So the first four, the explanation of their unity, is that they're unified in their love. They're unified in their works because they're unified in their love. Let's read verse 20. It says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. And what we see here is, when did the love between the Father and the Son begin? 
It didn't begin. It's just always been there. The love between the Father and the Son is a timeless, eternal reality of the Father and the Son. And we get a hint at that in John 17 in our Lord's Prayer. He says, you loved me to the Father before the foundation of the world. Before there was anything else, before there was time, there was this love of the Father and the Son. Because of this love, there is no gap in the information. Because the Father loves the Son, He shows Him all things. So there was never a beginning or end of the love between the Father and the Son. And there's never a beginning or end of the information shared between the Father and the Son. We're talking about timeless, eternal realities. And it's hard for us to grasp. Again, this is the deep end of the pool where Jesus is giving us a a peek into the eternal reality that is God. So it's a, a love without beginning or end. It's a sharing of information without beginning or end. And because of that, they do the same works. Because that relationship, that, that connection between them is never broken. And the greater works that the Father will give him, uh, I believe is referring specifically in this context to the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11. So Jesus is pushing the, the story along here in the Gospel of John. But they're unified in their love, so they're unified in their work. Secondly... They're unified in their self-existent life. And we see that in verse 21. John writes, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Who can give life? God. Only God can do that. Genesis 2.7, we see the first life of a human being breathed into Adam as God. 1 Samuel 2.6 says, The Lord, that is Yahweh, brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. Deuteronomy 32.39 says, There is no God beside me. I put to death and I give life. So this is something they would have known only God gives life. The son says, I give life to whom I wish. That can only be understood as a claim to be God. There's no other way to make sense of what he's saying. And we see this borne out through the New Testament, specifically, actually, in the Gospel of John. In John 4.14, he says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is not uh, as an instrument that God uses to raise people from the dead or to give spiritual life. Because we've seen that in Elijah, and we will see it in the book of Acts, and Paul and in Peter, they all raised people from the dead. But it wasn't on their own authority. Look back at verse 21. The father raises dead and gives him life, so the son gives life to whom he wishes. He's saying he does it not as an instrument like the prophets or the apostles would, but on his own wish, on his own authority. So this can only be taken as a claim to be God. And what we see here is, again, one of those attributes of God that is his self-existence. One great theologian said, The first thing Scripture teaches us concerning God is that he has a free, independent existence and life of his own that is distinct from all creatures. How does the Bible open? In the beginning, God created. Before he created, he was living, existing 
on his own independently by himself. Everything else that comes after that, the rest of the Bible, the rest of creation, that's all dependent on him. Only God has truly independent self-existence. And again, there's a human being in the first century standing before the Jewish establishment saying that he has that same self-existence. And we read that down in verses 25 and 26. He elaborates on that. He says, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. The original hearers, the people he's arguing with, knew exactly what he was claiming. He's claiming to be the same independent, self-existent God that they learned about from the Old Testament. So they're unified in their love, they're unified in their self-existent life. And then verse 22 tells us they're unified in their judgment. Let's read verse 22. For the Father, pardon me, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And again, judging of creation, the divine judgment, is something only God can do. As early as Genesis 18.25, God is called the judge of all the earth. In Psalm 9.8, the psalmist writes that God will judge the world in righteousness, and he will execute the peoples for their iniquity. And we read down in verses 27 and 30 in our passage, we see Jesus clarifies a little bit more for us as he expands his argument. In verse 27, he says, uh, The Father gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man, But then down in verse 30, he says, I can do nothing of my own initiative as I hear I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So even this judgment that has been given to the son, and we see that in scripture, the son is the one who judges. Even that's not separate from the father. He's doing it in perfect concord of the shared divine will with the father. And so we do see the Son through the rest of the New Testament as the one who's particularly pointed to as the one who judges creation. In Acts 17.31, Paul says that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And Romans 2.6 also says God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. So the claim to divine judgment, again, is a claim to be God. Only God can do that. Only God has the right to do that. But Jesus makes that claim. And so we see Jesus building up his argument here. He's saying we're unified in this way, in this way, in this way, to get to the so that in verse 23. So because the Father and Son are inseparable in their nature back in verse 17, in their work, verse 19, in their love, verse 20, in their life, verse 21, in their judgment, verse 22. Therefore, they must be unified in their honor. Let's read verse 23 together. So he says all this, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. And just as with all these other claims by Jesus, to be honored as God is to be God. And we know that abundantly clear from the Old Testament. And God not accepting his worship that is due to him being shared with anyone else. 
We see this in Isaiah 42, 8, where Yahweh says, I will not give my glory to another. In Isaiah 45, 22, and 23, this may sound familiar to you. He says, I am God, there is no other. Jump to verse 23. To me, every knee will bow and every tongue will, every tongue will swear allegiance. And that is familiar because that's attributed to Jesus. In Philippians 2, 10 and 11, it says, At the name of Jesus, every name will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the conclusion of Jesus' argument is clear. Again, go back to the context. Where did this whole conflict with the Pharisees start? He healed a man on the Sabbath, told him to carry his bed, And they said, you can't work on the Sabbath. We don't like what you've done on the Sabbath. And his answer is to say, if you don't like what I've done, if you don't honor me and my works, you're actually dishonoring who? The Father. And he makes that so clear in that second sentence of verse 23. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He said, it's impossible for you to to disregard me, to dishonor me without dishonoring the God that you've heard about in the Old Testament. So Jesus' point here is, is pretty clear. His defense is that he does this because he is God. He has the right to work on the Sabbath because he is God. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, we see elsewhere. And the argument for his deity is unmistakable. And he is saying that he is God. This is an argument for his deity, but that's not all it is. Even Mormons can affirm that Jesus is divine. They can say he is a God. But the uniqueness of this argument in particular, especially going back to verse 19 where he shows the absolute inseparable work between the Father and the Son, is not just that he is a God, but that he is the same God that Israel already knew from the Old Testament. And this is part of the message of John, of all these scriptures that you probably have memorized at some point. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. In chapter 14, verse 9, Philip says, show us the Father. What's Jesus' response? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And then finally, Thomas' confession in chapter 20, verse 28, he says, my Lord and my God. So the point is not that the Son is the Father, that's incorrect, but that he is the same God as the Father that they've known for thousands of years. The same God who spoke creation into existence in six days. And the same God who appeared in a burning bush and spoke to Moses. The same God who before that made a covenant with Abraham and walked through the dead animals. The same God who rained down ten plagues on Egypt and rained down judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. The same God who on Mount Carmel before Elijah sent fire down to consume the sacrifice and prove that he is the only real God and that Israel was in sin to go after Baals. That same God is now walking with human feet and speaking through human lips. This is the amazing claim of Jesus. And they knew exactly what he meant. That's why they tried to kill him. They knew that he was claiming to be Yahweh. Again, he's not the father. The son is not the father. But he is Yahweh. They are the same God. 
And throughout church history, this has been defended against different attacks to say that they are of the same essence. That's some language you've probably heard, are the same substance. Because early in the church, in the first 200 and 300 years, people would come along and they would say, well, the Son is God-like. He's God-ish. He has a, he's similar to God. He has a similar substance to God. And they would say, oh, look, we have such high regard for the Son. He's almost God. And they would say, that's a high view of the Son. But in the Council of Nicaea in 325 is when they nailed this down, not to just add words and to think for no reason, but to wall off these wrong views of who the Son is. So they would come and say, he's, the Son is the similar nature as the Father, a similar essence as the Father. But at the Council of Nicaea, they nailed down the language that he is of the same substance. And that's what we saw back in verse 17 and 18, saying that he's the same nature as the Father. But after the Council of Nicaea, unfortunately, those who taught contrary to the truth uh, really won the popular culture of the day. This, the most popular view was to say that the Son was like the Father, but not of the same nature as the Father. And you may have heard the name Athanasius. He was an early church defender of who Christ truly was. So after the Council of Nicaea, this Arianism and the saying that the Son is a subordinate God or a secondary God to the Father spread throughout you know, the known Christian world. And Athanasius stood alone. He stood against everyone else saying, no, the Son is the same God. He's the same nature as the Father. And he ministered about 45 years, and in that short time, he was exiled five times because he wouldn't back off of that truth. So out of the 45 years, he spent about 17 of those years in exile. And what would compel a guy to ruin his earthly life over this detail of theology, over this quibbling over the words that we use to speak about Jesus? What would compel him to do that? He understood that a Jesus who is not God does not save. If you mess up the Trinity and remove the Son as being honored in the same way as the Father, we lose the gospel. If the Son is not of the same essence as the Father, we have no sufficient mediator to reconcile us to the Father. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Romans 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. He must be the same nature or he is not a sufficient mediator to bring the two together. The great Dutch theologian Herman Bavink summarized this perfectly. He said, Jesus is not a third party coming from outside. As we think of mediators, maybe in a legal sense today, you have party A and party B. And then the mediator is a third party that goes between. So he says, Jesus is not coming from the outside as a third party who intervenes between God and us. But he is in himself the Son of God, the reflection of his glory, the exact imprint of his being, a partaker of God's essence, and at the same time, the Son of Man, the head of humanity, the Lord of the church. 
And this is the point. He does not stand between two parties. He is those two parties in his own person. This is the gospel, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then down to verse 14, and the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. That that same God, the same God that they knew from the Old Testament, has offered himself as a sacrifice. So when we lose this truth, we lose the gospel. That's why when the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, That Jesus is Michael the archangel in the flesh. Or the Mormons will tell you that he's one God among millions. Or the, the Muslims will tell you that he's a human prophet merely. I don't need to be reconciled to Michael the archangel. I don't need to be reconciled to one useless God among millions. I don't need to be reconciled to a human prophet. I need to be reconciled to the living God whose law that I have trampled under my feet. And the only way that's possible is if he offers himself as a legitimate sacrifice and as a true mediator between the two parties. And that's the point that John gets to in chapter 20. Let's turn there. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Why did John record the healing on the Sabbath? Why did John record this airtight logical argument of our Lord? Why did John record these things? Why did the Spirit lead him to record these things? Why did God breathe out these words? Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs, this healing on the Sabbath, this healing of the lame man, this argument of our Lord has been recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If we lose who Jesus is, we lose the gospel. If we lose that he is truly the one God and truly a human being, we lose our mediator. We lose our sacrifice, and we have no way to be reconciled to God. And so if you're here today, and you know that you're living in sin, and you feel the conviction of your sin, and you know that you're in wrong standing with God, you're an enemy of God, is what it says in Romans 5, there is still only one mediator. There is still only one way to be reconciled to the true God. And just as John said, you've heard the words that John recorded. You've heard the purpose of those words was to lead you to believe on Christ and to be reconciled to God. To, if you believe on him, your sins will be paid for. The guilty conscience that you have will be swept away under his mercy and you'll be reconciled to the God that you know you've offended. This is the beauty of the gospel. Not that he sent a secondary God or a subordinate God or someone else, but that he came himself and dwelt among us as Emmanuel. And offered himself as a sacrifice. Again, back to John 10. I have authority to lay my life down. I have authority to take it up again. This is the glory of the gospel. And it's completely lost if we miss the fact that Jesus is the same God that they knew from the Old Testament. So I would ask you today, if you don't know the mediator, if you don't know the one who stands as man and as God, come to him today. Have your guilt removed. Be reconciled to God and live for him in eternity. Let's pray. Father, once again, we're humbled 
by the fact that you would accommodate such enormous, majestic truths to communicate them in human words and in clear propositions that we can understand. We thank you for providing a sacrifice, for providing a mediator for us when we were nothing but enemies. We thank you for the offer that our sins will be paid for if we come to you. We thank you for being merciful when Adam first sinned to not just wipe out humanity, but that this was your plan to glorify yourself and your mercy and your love, that from that moment, from before that moment, you knew that you would redeem humanity in the person of Christ. And our Lord, we thank you, God the Son, that you took on flesh. You lived as a man even though you were God to be permanently God and man in the one person. We thank you that you died on a tree, not, not sending someone else, but as being a mediator to bring us and to reconcile us back to yourself. And we thank you for, once again, recording all these wonderful truths in your word. And I ask that it would penetrate our hearts and remind us daily of the sacrifice that you've made, of, of humbling yourself to take on flesh. And I ask for the unbelievers that they would be overwhelmed in their conscience and flee to the only one that can reconcile them to God. And for those of us that are believers, I pray that it would let us live in an eternal thanksgiving, knowing that we could not be reconciled to you if you had not sent your son. And we ask all this and we thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.